0: tribe do we have a story for you today coming all the way from the beautiful england so let me get started welcome welcome if you are new here to our channel thank you for coming thank you for our listeners and thank you for liking sharing and subscribing down here i got it right too i'm doing two things right today awesome um going for my third so if you can like, share, and subscribe down here on the channel. That would be so helpful so that you get notified of any new videos that we get uploaded. Thank you for coming out today. I want to thank all our listeners and I have uh, would like to welcome all of our new listeners to our channel. My name is Tina Ginn and I am an emergency preparedness coach a best-selling author of In the Blink of an Eye. I am a financial expert and an app developer of Your Backup Plan app. And I'm located here in beautiful Vancouver, BC. And we post step-by-step tutorials each and every week on our channel, Um, sometimes news, tips and tricks to what's going on in the world today. Um, and whatever else I feel like posting. So check out our Instagram, our Twitter, and our YouTube channels for any new releases of our broadcasts, our live streams, as well as our podcasts. So thank you for coming out to our live stream today. Um, Let me think. I want to let you know what we do on this channel we talk and interview real life people each and every week with their real life stories. Very, very invigorating, inspiring and motivating for everybody. It's coming up to our year anniversary already. So um, I wanted to briefly describe your backup plan app. And this is a little synopsis of what we do on our channel and what we're all about we talk about it won't happen to me why people don't prepare for the unexpected not looking at the risk and being prepared for an emergency that yeah that wasn't an option for me what if it is ground in stone that something will happen it's just when so i truly believe that we are not superman but people in our complicated lives with no time to get prepared for anything. Were we prepared for the pandemic in 2020? No. Were we prepared for wildfires or floods or hurricanes? No. Were we prepared for earthquakes? No. Are we prepared for the inevitable? No. But families, partners, businesses, single people, can move on with their busy lives, knowing that their stuff, that their important information, that's all up in their own head, can be organized in one easy place, so that the impact on their own life and their important loved ones can be managed easily with peace of mind for any storm or tragedy that strikes. I coach each and every one, because there's no one that gets out of this alive. No one is Superman, and why not look at what we can do today to be protected? The stresses involved with life tragedies can be overwhelming for us. Knowing you have a plan can bring so much needed peace of mind. We just don't know what that might be. So be prepared for the unexpected and get started on your own backup plan. And try out the backup plan app and get better educated with the emerging blueprint that's going to be launched very, very soon. And you know, Prene Brown says everyone has a story. It will bring you to your knees and be I think this is where our guest today, Phil Muse, from the beautiful UK has a story to tell, because it's his survival guide that has brought him here today. It's his story. So what will your story be, listeners, and I want to welcome I you know, I have had one year anniversary coming up very soon. And I want to welcome My German friends, meine deutsche Freunde, sind in unserem Podcast willkommen. Wenn Sie Kommentare haben, können Sie gern Fragen stellen. Uh, I just wanted to introduce my German friends because you guys are kicking ass when it comes to listening to my podcast. So thank you from my heart to yours. Thank you. Viele, viele Grüße. For Allah, so thank you, everybody. I am going to bring on Phil Muse here today, our special guest. Hello. Hi, Phil. Hi, hi. I just wanted to introduce you. It's not uh, too bad of a long introduction, so hold on one second.
1: No problem.
0: So we have Phil Muse today to be introduced from beautiful UK. He's written a book called Orphan Boys. It takes a village to raise a child. It's a beautiful, charming, heartfelt, heartbreaking memoir and very wonderful and powerful. He tells a story of how his idyllic English childhood is blown apart as his parents die within 10 weeks of each other and how his community rallied around to save him and his younger brother. Phil Muse is a BAFTA-nominated TV producer who is now working as a writer and is based at his home in Northern England. Welcome, Phil.
1: Thank you so much, Tina. It's lovely to be here.
0: I meet so many cool people that, all around the world that I get so excited because there will be friends for life. I'm so excited to have you come on our channel today.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to hear you speak in German there. Because Germany, Germany, uh, Berlin is one of my favorite holiday destinations. And I I actually went there for my honeymoon. Uh, Oh,
0: nice. Um, He talks about how his life in – here he comes –
1: Sorry. There he is.
0: That's technology for you. It is. You never know what you're going to get.
1: Absolutely.
0: So, Phil, tell us all about your story. It's amazing. I haven't bought your book yet, but I am going to buy it. And um, I really think that it tells a story that could possibly be a movie one day. Um, I'm sure you've thought about that because of the world that you've worked in most of your life. And um, I'm so excited to hear more about from beginning to end of where it's taken you.
1: Okay. So back, if let me take you back to 1976. Uh, In the UK, we experienced the hottest summer on record, I think it was, or certainly the hottest summer for many years. And I was, at that point, I was six years old, and my younger brother Roger was four, and my elder brother Richard would have been about 16. And we lived on our beautiful farm in County Durham in Northeast England with uh, our parents, Harry and Alma. And it was idyllic, we had an idyllic life, we had, uh, woodlands, we had tars and swings, we had a lot of freedom as children, so we could go off for hours on end as a six-year-old and a four-year-old and play and make mud pies and get in the river and make tars and swings and whatever and play with our friends and then come back uh, when we were hungry, we came home when we were hungry, <laughs> and we had this lovely life, it was wonderful, there was horses, lots of sheep, cows, plenty of livestock, chickens the whole lot 18 months later uh, so we're looking at November 1977 uh, I'd gone to bed and kissed my dad goodnight and gone up to bed and during the night I shared a room with my little brother in the farmhouse and during the night I woke up about three o'clock in the morning and I heard movement around the house and which was unusual, so I got up and walked along the passageway to my mother's and father's bedroom. And my mother was sat on the bed crying, and I asked her what was wrong. And she just sat me down and said, darling, your daddy's died tonight. And my world changed at that point. So we were then plunged into this world of darkness. Is the only way I could describe it. So we, I regret that I persuaded my mother to let me see my dad laid out in his coffin in the house a couple of days later, which uh, affected me for the best part of 40 years and caused me to have nightmares and uh, probably really suffered PTSD as a result of it. I know I, know I did. Um, but life was very, very difficult because...
0: And they don't do that much anymore as much, do they? As they did in the 70s. No,
1: no. this was a real tradition, and it was because we we grew up in this 12th-century farmhouse that was very large. And so there was a big room at the end of the passageway on the ground floor that was the dining room. It had steps leading up to it, and it was only used for things like Christmas Day and other formal occasions. And my father's body was laid out in a coffin in the dining room, and people would come to see him. And that really traumatized me. I dreamt for in the immediate evenings after that at, at night, I dreamt that my dad was the scary ghost, like on Scooby Doo, which I know sounds ridiculous, but I dreamt but, he was going to get me. And that was really traumatizing. So, was it
0: open? Was it an open casket as oh, well? Yeah yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh,
0: that's scary.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And my, but in my mother's defense, she was really reluctant to let me see him. Really reluctant. Now I know if you're in grow up in Ireland, it's the norm. You, you're almost lifted up to kiss the dead person, you know, as a child. But no, my mother was very reluctant to let me see him. But I did anyhow. And it was awful. And I, I thankfully didn't go to my father's funeral. My mother felt that I was we were far too young, my younger brother and I. So dad hadn't left a will there was no will so immediately his estate went into a status called probate which meant that bank accounts were frozen Uh, my mother couldn't buy things we needed for the farm we had a sheep farm and cattle farm and they needed to buy extra feed for the farm they needed to buy feed for the horses and dogs my dad died five weeks before Christmas. And I remember my grandmother telling me that my mother had gone to her and said in tears with embarrassment that, uh, please, can I mother, can I borrow some money because I need to get the children something for Christmas because they won't understand if father Christmas doesn't come. Right. So and this was all because the estate was in probate and the accounts were still frozen. And this went on until I think about the middle of February. So my dad died in the middle of November. And this went on until about the middle of February. And then some of the money was released and my mother was able to pay back my grandparents. And then the following week on the Monday, my mother took me to school uh i was seven still at this point and she took me to school and she kissed me goodbye and i never saw her again oh dear we went to a friend's house and where uh, in the afternoon where she took ill and collapsed and she was taken by ambulance to a local hospital and that night she died of a heart attack and she was only 43 years old So she left behind a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, an 18-year-old, and two grieving parents who were hitting on 70, and a sheep farm and cattle farm.
0: That was still up in a mess from before. Yes. Still a mess.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, my brother had done, my brother, elder brother Richard, who was 18, had done an amazing job of just keeping things ticking over and going out there and working, and working while grieving as well. And it's, it was just taken for granted. That's what he had to do. Uh, but it must have been incredibly difficult for him, and I'm probably only realising that now as an adult,
0: right.
1: how difficult it was for him. I mean, he was, you know, he, he was an incredible person richard you know he slays it's the strength that he must have had to um hone in to just get on and get through and get to that next stage um he had to step up and be a man right yeah oh yeah and he did he did he really did and uh so with my grieving grandparents We heard someone that morning, someone, Richard sat us down and told us our mother had died the night before. And I remember going through into the sitting room with my little brother and just shutting the door behind us, shutting everyone out. And it was just the two of us. And I kept thinking I was going to wake up, that it was a bad dream. I still remember it like it was yesterday. And then at one point, I think somebody came in and I remember somebody said, a friend of the family said, the poor little orphans. And that was the mm-hmm. first time i heard that word used in reference to us. And I, I, I always felt uncomfortable. And so the calling the book Orphan Boys is slightly
0: against slightly, what you were.
1: Yeah, because we never felt like we were orphans. Because to me, orphans were Oliver Twist, Annie. They had nobody, they had nothing, they didn't have love whereas yes we'd lost our parents but we were surrounded by love we had amazing grandparents Um my two aunts so my auntie brenda my mum's sister was just astounding she was straight there and she was my grandmother's uh right hand person really to help her to help bring us up we had my dad's sister Uh, my Auntie Olive, who was just wonderful, she came and took us for days out and showered us with love and helped Grandma where she could. Um, But essentially it was Grandma and Auntie Brenda that brought us up with Grandad. And we had to try and just get on with life and deal, deal with life. And then I think it was a week after my mother's funeral, we i think i was i've gone back to school i've gone back to school i think it was and the uh, there was a knock at the door and it was the authorities social oh, yeah. school, they're called uh, uh, over here and they basically said they wanted to take roger and i into care mm. and that would be a plan my grandmother physically chased them out the house <laughs> <laughs> there was, nobody was going to take her children away from her, her grandchildren away from her. Um, she physically chased them out of the house. She she wasn't having any of it. And thankfully, there was a safety net where a really good friend of the family um, who was in a Masonic lodge with my father had spoken to some uh, people he was connected to, and they'd said, we can help here we can pay for the boys to go to boarding school when they reach eight years old each of them and they can go to boarding school not too far away and they can come home every few weeks and spend time with grandma on the farm and see the family and that will help our grandparents to keep the family unit together awesome thank
0: goodness for that plan
1: yeah yeah really lucky so i went to school in a lovely town called barna castle which is about 18 miles from where our farm was and six months later i went to away to school uh, on my own i had to leave my little brother behind and i remember the first week i cried a lot and they would the, the, the boys in the dormitory who were old and been there for a couple of years, they would take you to the house, mother, who wasn't very forgiving. No. And she, she – Just she the name
0: alone doesn't sound forgiving.
1: Yeah, she was she was a real Miss Hannigan. She really was. And she wasn't very kind. And she just used to say, oh, don't be silly, Muse. You'll soon get over this homesickness. And what oh. I didn't tell them was I wasn't homesick. I was grieving. I was still grieving. My parents hadn't been dead a year. My dad hadn't even been dead a year. And here I was, away from my family, on my own. I was eight years old.
0: Did they both die of a heart attack then? Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. So dad was two.
0: I think um, a partner can die um, from from the grief, from the loss. You could...
1: Yeah, I mean, my mother. Uh, this this is told. This story is told in the book. So the previous summer, before my father died, and uh, my we'd been on holiday in the south of England to my uncle's farm in Hampshire, which is near the south coast of England. And uh, my mother had taken ill there and been taken to hospital where she had suffered a heart attack. So she already had a history of mm. a bad heart, and so did my dad. Um, but I think that there's a good chance. We'll never know these things, do we? But I think there's probably a good chance that her passing was speeded up by the the heartbreaking loss of my father, but also the stress that she was under. Yeah. All the financial trying to keep everything afloat whilst nursing the broken heart having lost the love of a life dealing with two little children who were crying for their daddy an 18 year old who probably was cry- who was crying in private yeah and, um, and dealing with her own grief so that i think it all compounded together
0: absolutely
1: to, to um
0: create to, this too much stress kind
1: of yeah.
0: problem yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, and then again, when she died, you know, there was no will either. She hadn't had no time to organise it, and there was probate again. And,
0: oh dear!
1: You know, all of that. <laughs> you no. didn't
0: learn the first time around.
1: No, we just didn't have time. I think I think <sighs> we got because there was only a week between the the estate being legally passed into the name of my mother. Yeah. And then she died. There was a week, you know, it's, it's a, uh, so, so yeah, it, it just, it, it, she, nobody expected it. It was a it, no. was a, it was a shock. It was a, not just a shock to our family, not just a shock to our friends, but to the wider community in Weardale where we live. It was a huge shock, you know, and, 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 uh, the, the the village was left reeling because we are a close knit community here. You know, people really do look out for each other. Connections stretch back generations between families, and new connections between families are being made all the time. Yeah. So it, it was it was tough. It was tough. And then so my my grandmother and grandfather were heartbroken. They were, they were running the farm, and I went away. school and I think I was there for two years and my younger brother Roger was then due to join me and that summer we lost my grandfather just he had had the most awful time in the Second World War fighting in Burma uh, against the Japanese and had seen some horrific things and I think certainly he'd suffered PTSD, definitely had, definitely had. They, they always called it shell shock back then. Right. And uh, he never got over losing my mother. And I think he just – I don't like using the word suicide, but he left on his own terms.
0: Well, you give up, you know, inside yeah. of you when it's time to give up. It's time.
1: Yeah. And he took his own way out. And it was – I don't think my grandmother ever forgave him for what he did, but he clearly reached the point he couldn't take anymore. And I I didn't know this as a child, this is what had happened, this is something I found out when I was in my early 20s. And my heart broke for him when I did find out. And so we just had to get on. But I think there was always this thing hanging over us that, um, because by this time, you know, my, my grandmother was now in her early 70s um she'd had a stroke the year before my mother died and she always used to say you know if we made plans for anything let's go on can we go on holiday to the seaside this summer and she'd always say if god spares me so it was always drummed into us that we wouldn't have her around forever and that gave although we felt loved and secure in many respects there was always that element of insecurity that we didn't know God, what if she dies? You know, we'd known I'd lost my father, my mother, my grandfather. And then I think my grandmother's sister died the following year. And I, I started to think, crikey, is somebody going to die every year? And I started to become suspicious. Uh, not suspicious, and um, superstitious, superstitious. So I developed a really bad OCD where i used to have to do this thing where i'd have to go into a room and touch a wall so many times on a each wall and if i didn't then that meant someone was going to die and i was going to cause their death by not touching the wall i know it sounds crazy it sounds ridiculous but but
0: you put it in your own head that way right yeah
1: because i i kept thinking i could have done something to stop my granddad leaving that night that he did and went back to their own house and to do maybe doing what he did, and I could have maybe stopped. I could maybe hold off the the, the death of my grandmother because we kept thinking she could go any year now. You know, in the 1970s, 1980s, 72 was considered elderly. It we was still considered very old. So there was always this thing in the back of your mind that oh, we're going to lose her, we're going to lose her. Okay. And Even if she was sleeping in the chair, I would start to panic and I'd have to go over and check she wasn't dead, which I know is ridiculous, but that's just that was our life, you know. And
0: yeah.
1: Don't get me wrong, we had a very happy life with my grandmother. She made she was amazing and my aunt was amazing and my brother was amazing. And we were fairly happy kids. Boarding school was tough. And you know, I go into that in quite a lot of detail in the book about what happened to us at boarding school. Uh, I was okay at boarding school, but my younger brother, Roger, had a tough time. He had a really tough time um, in the pre- in the junior school when the house mother, this Miss Hannigan character had to, she sort of victimized him and anyhow. So it does sound like there's a lot of doom and gloom, but it, the thing with orphan boys It kind
0: of sounds like Harry Potter's story. <laughs>
1: Yeah, do you know if I'd had a magic wand?
0: (laughs) Look what you could have done.
1: I could have put a spell on it. Um, But we were always aware of how lucky we were, and we did feel lucky. Now, I know people watching this and listening to this will be thinking, how could you feel lucky? You've lost both your parents, your grandfather, you're away from your family. But as far as we were concerned we grew up on a beautiful farm. We still lived on that farm. We had a, an amazing school to go to. Now, yeah, it wasn't always perfect, but that's school for you. We had amazing opportunities at school. We met people from, I had uh, suddenly had, uh, was living amongst all these boys at school who many of them lived abroad. So those people from, Nigeria boys from Nigeria and Cyprus and Germany and Saudi Arabia and, you, you just the world was suddenly there in front of you and you were tantalised with stories in these different countries. Uh, so that that probably sort of instilled a bit of a travelling bug in me from when I was older.
0: It probably um, helped you, though, listening to different stories, especially as a child, to understand people's different lives.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. And I think... Um, we were always grateful. And my grandmother used to have this thing where she said, uh, right, you're coming home next weekend for to see me, you and your brother. The following two weeks after that, you're coming home again. Would you like to bring home with you a friend each who can't go home to their parents this holiday? So we would be bringing our friends from Nigeria and from Hong Kong and Singapore and the Philippines. We had friends from all over. And I mean, at that time in the 1970s, in our little village in the north of England, I think sometimes they maybe had people hadn't seen anyone who was um, of African origin before, hadn't seen a black person before. So my grandmother loved it. She loved making a fuss of these boys and having them come to stay with us and um, giving them a weekend of love. I think that was it. She just wanted to give them some love and look after them and make them feel that they weren't so isolated away from their families. And um, she was incredible. My grandmother was incredible. And this, someone since described this book as. Um, My love letter to her, and you know what? I think that's the right. I think I think this is my love letter to my grandmother because she was just the most incredible woman. She she was amazing, and she she saw us become adults. She lived, you know, she lived until I was twenty seven when my grandmother died, and Roger, my younger brother, would have been twenty four. And she saw her boys grow up. She'd done her job.
0: Yeah. She saw, me,
1: she saw me graduate from university, and she um and she always said, you know, she was so proud of us all. Um, But she she she'd done her job, and she did she did a good job. And we were we were with her when she died. And
0: that's awesome.
1: At the moment when she died, and and I I don't think people always like to use this phrase, but it, I, I do. She had what we would call a good death. She died peacefully in a hospital bed with all her family around her. We were holding her hands and she'd not been um, able to speak for about a week and a half. But she just opened her eyes at that last moment and she said, she looked up and she said, oh, my Alma, which is my mother's name, her daughter. And she says, my Alma. And she smiled, and she went. And you know what that
0: happened. was, don't you?
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: She came for her.
1: Yeah, she came. But for how
0: her. sweet is that?
1: And and that gave me so much comfort. Although we were very saddened to lose her, Um that gave me so much comfort. It really did because she was she was an incredible woman, and. Um, you know, she had so much love for us boys and, and we were, she'd always said that had she not been given the task that fate had handed her of looking after her two boys and bringing us up, she wouldn't have lived to the age she did. She was 87 when she died. I mean, this is a woman who when she was 68 had had a major stroke and was bedridden for some time. Oh wow! To go on and lose her daughter, and she never got over that. But to just to be able to work through that and find the strength each day to look after my brother and I with the help of my auntie Brenda and the rest of the family. It sounds like
0: you had the whole community, though you really had a. It was a community. We
1: did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the community was amazing. We had. And the little school where I was at when my parents died at that time, uh, it was run by um, some lovely Catholic nuns and they would help. And, you know, it was my birthday party about a a couple of months after my mother's death and the nuns would say to my grandmother, let's have the party for Philip at the school then you're not having all these children running around the house and just come so we can just help you and alleviate some of the pressure that you must be under. Um, and then I would get taken all the time to my auntie prenders who she lived on the coast in Sunderland. And so I'll get to spend all my holidays on the beach and, uh, with her and my cousin, um, and that, again, you know, it's just all that support. So it is true when they say, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, I really believe that. But the village isn't always just a physical village. It's the extended family. It's just all those people who have that connection to those who are lost, who, who who've who've going through that loss, I should say. Right. What uh, do you
0: think, Phil, um, what do you think would be, could have been different would it have changed anything would have would it been easier as a child what could have been different in that situation um it's not a test
1: <laughs> no 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 no. there's, there's definitely two things spin to mind so for my for my pair for my grandparents and my mother the the, the process of Um, the legalities of dealing with death and the finances and all that, the way that that is dealt with in a very time-consuming manner did not help. So that would have definitely made an initial, immediate difference. I I think for my brother Roger and I, it would have been for us not to have been bullied by the person that was charged with our care at school. That's the only way I can put it she's 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 dead now I did change her name for the book and the reason I did that is because her children are adults and still live in the area and still alive and it wasn't fair on them but I couldn't lie about how badly how how badly at times we were treated and bullied and it's those scars not so much with me but certainly with Roger they lasted for a lot of years a lot of years that lasted for for, for for decades really. So I think, I think that we, we never told our family what was going on at school because we knew they had enough to contend with already.
0: Right.
1: We knew as they had protected us as children from certain elements and news, the, the real wise and wherefores of my grandfather's death, for example, We, in turn, had to protect our grandmother and our elder brother and not tell them everything that was going on because um, we knew that they had enough on their plate. And there's only so much sometimes a person can take. So we just had to sort of get on with it and develop our own coping mechanisms. So they're probably the two things that I would have changed. I think had I have been able to write a letter to my younger self and say, look, all these things that you're worrying about, it's all gonna be okay. Don't spend time stressing and worrying about them and try and be more confident because I wish I had been more confident as a child. So I really didn't have any confidence at all. And, um I wasn't brilliant at sport and in the school, which was a good school, a brilliant school. But sport, sport mattered over everything. Sport, sport mattered over academic achievement.
0: Oh wow!
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was like that. Um, sport was everything. You know, you could be rubbish, rubbish at your exams, but if you were good at rugby, you, you were hailed as a hero, and I think we, uh, so I, I was more, art- Roger was more sporty, I was more artistic, but the artistic side for anyone, you got no credit for that as well, no credit right. for that. Um, so I wish I'd maybe been more, I, that could have led to us being, both being more confident as younger people. But so we,
0: do you think that not being prepared from your parents' Was that a generational thing of, of people just aren't prepared? Or do you think it was just because they felt nothing was going to happen? That, you know, the real reason today, I mean, this is, brings you back to the 70s. But the same goes for people in 2020.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think, to be honest, Tina, that I think it's just they thought that they were younger. They were younger and i just don't think they realized what the
0: effects ha- are
1: yeah yeah there, there had been you know there'd been a history of wills in the family and so i've still got copies of some of them and they're these beautiful old parchments with with you know <laughs> copper plate writing on them yes. all written and ah oh, they're, they're beautiful <laughs> documents um if if you could describe a will as such a thing, but they are beautiful documents. Um, yeah, I think it was just their age, and I think that's what it was. And
0: yeah,
1: so yeah, that's so that, a then, scary
0: thought to think that nothing has really changed. No, today, no,
1: no. and it wasn't. And oh. the, the the tragedy was that that wasn't. So we grew up to be adults, but then our story took another twist. So I decided to write Orphan Boys as a a, a writing exercise, really for me. I, w- I was recommended. Uh, I was I worked with a, a, a brilliant uh, broadcaster called Sandy Toxvig, who has written many many wonderful books. And I was telling her I was trying to write a novel, and it wasn't coming together. And she said, oh, look, why don't you write your story? She knew my story. We were friends. And so I started writing Orphan Boys. I started sketching out the book, and I phoned both my brothers, and they said, look, I'd really like to tell our story. Would you be okay with that? And they both were like, yeah, you do it. No problem at all. So I wrote the book. And as we were sort of trying to organise a publish, get a publishing deal and get a launch date and everything, um, we got the phone call, the worst phone call possible, um, to say that Roger had died. He'd been found. He died from an aneurysm. He lived in Spain, in New York, in Spain. He'd gone on to be incredibly successful. He had his own radio show uh, on Radio 1 in Mallorca. Uh, He was uh, a very well-respected DJ in Mallorca. He had the most wonderful life out there, the most wonderful friends. And at the age of 44, he'd gone. We'd left. And uh, he was my best friend. And Richard and I and the rest of the family were just heartbroken, were devastated. And again, there was no don't
0: tell me yeah what are we gonna do with your family
1: (laughs) well roger thankfully for roger he had he was very cautious and he'd saved and he had all his paperwork all his other paperwork was in place but he didn't own his apartment so that actually made things a hell of a lot easier and we had the most amazing community out in magalof in new york where he lived who just rallied around us oh nice They organized uh, funeral directors i had to organize his funeral with his friends on skype because i was still on the, in the uk and there was no point in us flying out until we could set a date so we had to organize it all with translators it was a very surreal experience and it was probably, I'll be honest, it was far more devastating than losing my parents. Um, Yeah,
0: it's harder as we get older.
1: Yeah, and I think just, you know, he was just the light that lit up a room. Roger was just the light that lit up a room. So when I was originally wrote the book, sorry, I'm just.
0: It's okay. Take a deep breath. (laughs) <laughs> You'll get me, I'm I'm the queen of emotion here So
1: Yeah, I'm normally really composed But yeah, it's tough So when I came to write the book I called it Orphan Boy When we lost Roger I changed the title to Orphan oh, Boy
0: Awesome
1: Because I had then the responsibility Of at least trying to tell Some of his side of the story as well
0: Good best for you.
1: Book. And so it's not just a love letter to my grandmother, really. It's a bit of a love letter to Roger. And I've dedicated the book to him and my grandparents and parents because he just was the most incredible person. And I've learned so much from him. And um, it's, if ever, I mean, we knew anyway that life was precious and you have to live a, a very good life and a full life but this has taught us that you just have got to do it you can't put things off roger told me 17 years before he died that he wanted to go and live in mallorca and he was nervous about doing it he was nervous about whether he would make a success of it and i said to him you'll smash it and he said will you come over with me so i went over with him i went for a week's holiday and i flew back on my own and left him out there and he thought he'd hoped by the end of that first week he would have an apartment and the possibility of a job. I think he started working on the third night of the holiday. He got <laughs> himself a job. So I spent the rest of the holiday with uh, strangers. But no, he was just an incredible guy, and I, uh, I'm I'm just always so proud of him. And I probably I feel bad that I'm more proud of him now that he's gone and I've heard more and more stories about things that he did good things that he did for people that um, I couldn't be more proud of him but I am my pride for him just increases every day and it's um, so. yeah we miss him terribly we miss him terribly and it's it's been a wake-up call for for us all really to just to make sure we keep enjoying life and to follow our dreams and so with that uh i was living in scotland with my husband for 15 years and i'd always dreamed maybe of moving to the countryside and then my husband suggested one day why don't we move back to the village where you grew up then we won't Ah. we won't be starting again so two and a half years ago we decided to change jobs and sell our house and within 10 weeks we'd moved and here we are so i'm now living about three quarters of a mile from the farm where we grew up and where orphan boys is started started.
0: yeah that's so
1: cool circle really and it's,
0: it's
1: lovely and we've been welcomed home with open arms by the community it's been wonderful absolutely wonderful um and I'm glad I was here for this last year because this last year has been difficult for everybody around the world. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that I've, I'm relieved that I've been in this wonderful, warm community because I could understand how some people in big cities and towns could feel, could be so isolated in those um, densely populated areas, yet very isolated. Yet here in the beautiful countryside of our village. And um, we're
0: not so noticeable, I guess, The
1: Yeah, I think obviously there's isolated people everywhere, but certainly uh, for me, this has been a lifeline to at least every day I can walk out in beautiful. And at the moment I'm outside my front door, I'm in beautiful countryside, which is, which is lovely. And I feel very lucky, very fortunate. Um, so, for, for that respect, you know, it, it's um, amongst others, It's been a, it's been a really good move, and it's been then well placed to then start building a new chapter of our future together as a family. It's
0: probably uh, what your soul needed, what your deep inside yeah. soul wanted.
1: I think so. I think so. I think when I when I go for walks in the local area. I almost feel like this is going to sound so strange. I feel like like the landscape is hugging me. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That's going to sound so strange to some people. But I do, I feel like it's, I feel like enveloped in this gigantic hug of rolling hills and the river and just the the wildlife and the farm livestock around and, you know, just everything that's just, I think there's probably triggers of memories everywhere for me, but I just feel like there's just so much love and um, not what you sound hippie about
0: it. Yeah. Well, Phil, it's probably uh, your soul is saying, what took you so long, Phil? What took you so long?
1: Yeah, I think I, think I had to, you know, I had to go out there. And, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, it's fairly remote where we live. So I couldn't have worked, you know. I couldn't have had my twenty-one year in job, TV, um, you know, making all those wonderful programs and um, and working with amazing people and getting to travel True. and do all those things. So. I've no regrets. I think everything's happened for a reason, and I've loved the time that I lived in Scotland, and uh, you know my husband's Scottish. I've got the most amazing Scottish family as well, who are just amazing and lovely. That's
0: awesome.
1: And, um, so, and it's good that we're not too far away from them either. We're just a mm-hmm. few drive away. Um, so, yeah, no regrets at all. Not no. at all. I think you know. I think you know. I. I wrote to Roger in the end, and, you know, the, the, uh, if, if you'll allow me to just... Sure. In, in the uh, acknowledgements, um, I, I said to Roger, I said, Roger, you took more steps alongside me on this journey than anyone else, and you were the only person who truly experienced much of what had happened in this book. We turned out in all right in the end, didn't we? I love you and miss you always, my bonny lad. That's a real northeast phrase, my bonny lad. It's uh-huh. um, uh it's just such a term of endearment. But and I think we did. I think we, you know, we did underplay it. We did turn out all right. And I um I, I know that my grandmother would be proud of us. Uh, our grandmother'd be proud of us. Oh,
0: uh, absolutely. I'm sure,
1: I'm sure that he's with her up there, you know. Um and it does give me some comfort. Not always, but it does. It just gives me some comfort. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. What um, What would you like to tell people, our listeners, that you've learned from all of this? There must be quite a few different things that you could touch on.
1: Um, yeah. I mean... The one thing i'll always say i i had to sadly go to a funeral this weekend of a a dear lad who lived in our village who passed away at a ridiculously young age and it was just heartbreaking to see and i said to some of his friends that night um i said there will come a time when you remember him with smiles rather than with tears And I say that to anybody that loses somebody, I hope for you, and I'm sure there will come the time when you start remembering with smiles and laughter rather than the tears. But in order to remember with the smiles and laughter, you've got to make those memories, which means you've got to treasure life, you've got to treasure your relationships and treasure the people that you love. And as long as you are doing that and are living a good life and doing your best to live a good life, it's, I know life's not always easy, but if you do your best with what life gives you and just exude love, then you will create those precious memories that will one day comfort you in your hour of need. And I really feel strongly about that. And I, you know, when I think back to my grandmother, um, I always told her I loved her. You know, whenever I spoke to my brother, you know, as guys in our 40s, and I would speak to him on the phone in Spain. I'd always say afterwards, love you, love you, bruv. And he would always say the same to me. And I always say the same to my older brother, I say the same to my husband, I say the same to my niece and nephews. You know, it's, don't be ashamed to say you love someone. But if you make those memories, then when the time comes one day, you will remember people with smiles eventually rather than tears. The other thing I would say is write a will. <laughs> Just write a will. Um, get, get, get
0: your crap together.
1: Get your crap together. <laughs> get things in place. There's nothing morbid about saying, right, If should anything happen, there's a green folder. This is what I want. In that cupboard. Here's a list. This is what I want. And yes, I do want Kylie Minogue played at my funeral, <laughs> 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 or whatever, whatever you but, know. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: um, just yeah, because that, as much as that sounds morbid, my God, it will help the people who you are leaving behind. It will help those that you're leaving behind and we were lucky with roger because we we talked a lot we talked a lot and we talked about what we would want and we also talked about what we wouldn't want i think that was it you know roger always yeah. was very uh clear with me about what he didn't want so you know we had we asked people to wear bright clothes at his wedding and it is funeral sorry his funeral because we didn't want, he didn't want people all in black. That wasn't how he lived his life. So he wanted his party, his goodbye party to be representative of how he lived his life. Which he was wanted one, his
0: personality to shine.
1: Yeah, which was one full of love and colour and music. Beautiful. So I think, I think that that, and that will help you. That will help you. And certainly things are changing here in the UK. I don't know how it is in Canada, but the way funerals are being done in the UK now, people are starting to say, this is what I want. I don't want to have X, Y, and Z just because that's the done thing. This is what I want. And even most recently, the Duke of Edinburgh yes. has his own coffin drawn on a, a customised Land Rover. I mean, how wonderful is that? That that's, he got the funeral that he wanted.
0: Right. And I
1: think that if people know the deceased is getting the funeral that they would have wanted, it will help them. It will help you to that next stage. And no matter how tragic the circumstances are, as they often can be, as we've discovered in our village uh, most recently, Um it will help. You yeah. know, it will give might just feel like a tiny bit of comfort at the time, but I think in coming years it does give you more and more comfort. Um and it, it, it I, I think that's really important. I think it's can really Can you
0: important. can you imagine if he hadn't been prepared? I mean he was ninety nine. I mean people think that that's a good time to be prepared but as we've said with Phil here. Uh, with I don't understand because sickness and death and tragedies don't just happen because you're white or you're black or you're brown or you're pink or purple. It doesn't happen because you're a certain age as you've experienced. Yeah. It, it happens anytime. Yeah. And for some reason we think, well, when you're 99, I'll be prepared then. <laughs> You know, that's just what people think. Yeah. Um, and could you imagine if he hadn't have been prepared for his passing, um, what that would have looked like for for the palace? The um, queen? I, I
1: think the thing is the way that the palace works and the way that the queen, the royal family works, is these things are always prepared. So I don't think that would have ever been a scenario. But
0: exactly.
1: I think the classic example is when Princess Diana passed away in, on the 30th of August 1997, they were like, What do we do? We've got no precedent here. You've got two sides of a family who probably, I think, by all accounts, at times were working against each other, but at times then had to work together to decide what was going to be the right thing to do to honour someone because, you know, this was a public figure, right. and such a public presence. So I, I think that Princess Diana's death was a classic example of um, an institution like the British monarchy being thrown into absolute turmoil and, um, in a, in a very public way, um, because nobody envisaged that this icon, which is what she was, was going to be killed so tragically at the age of 36. Yeah.
0: and it had a huge effect on the boys too, just like it did with you.
1: Huge effect on the boys. And I know because they, when I saw those boys walking behind the coffin, on the funeral, on the day of the funeral and i remember that day very clearly a little part of me was like oh why are you making those poor boys do that whose decision is this being?" <laughs> uh, but you know the I,
0: difference people don't realize between what they have in the monarchy to what the average person has around the world yeah. is that they have a team of different departments that look after you, look after what you're going to wear, look after what you're going to eat, look after what your bed looks like. It, they they look after your finances, you know, they look after all of that. And in our world, no one does that. And yeah. that's why I created your backup plan app because I wanted people to have a team of people within their pocket that they could rely on and entrust yeah. their stuff with. Yeah. So that, that to me, was the importance.
1: We, we have a little bit of a tradition here in Stanup that it seems that when people die, no matter who it is, there's always somebody turns up at the house with food. It might be a homemade pie or a quiche or something somebody will turn up with food i know when recently my a dear friend of mine lost her husband very suddenly and the next morning i all i could think of was right she's got her her son and his wife and the grandchildren that have turned up at the house during the night they're going to need to eat Right. If I, take, if I took a bag of breakfast stuff, I took bacon and bread rolls and orange juice because I thought that's just one less thing for them to have to think about. And that's food, you know, and, and the same, then somebody else took soup up or whatever and pies and whatever. So they, at least they're not having to think about the, the food aspect. Can you imagine if you had? somebody bring you a package of all the paperwork that you needed and all the instructions that you needed at that crucial moment when you are going through
0: when it doesn't think right moment. your head doesn't think right right Phil no at that moment you can't you can't
1: think no. straight but it's as vital as food you know if that because yeah. then if you're not the less time you have to worry about paperwork and about organising and about decisions on funeral music or flowers or whatever, that gives you more time to tend to your heart and to deal with the grieving process. The more time we spend, in, in my view, dealing with all this other stuff, it's putting off. Yes. the healing, it's going to take longer to heal. I really believe that. I really do yes. believe that. So if you can make that process as smooth as you can, it will help. It might feel like in a really small way at the time, but in the grand scheme of things, it's mm. actually a major, major deal. And it will, it, it really does help you heal a lot more quickly.
0: I totally believe that. And I call that process to be yeah. present you need to be present to get them to be better yeah um, you know so it's so important people don't realize it until you're stuck having to deal with it like you have phil okay. it's an amazing amazing story and beautiful words that you've said today yes. So thank you so very much for that. Did you have anything else that you'd like to tell the listeners? Where can they find your book?
1: Uh, so my book is available uh, on Amazon. I don't know. Do you have Barnes and Noble in Canada? Yes. Uh, Barnes and Noble stock my book. Um, if you're uh, in australia it's in booktopia it's all around the world on amazon uh, in the uk it's available at waterstones W H smiths and foils along with the amazing array of independent bookshops which we've got to go and support them and yes. also do you know what if you don't have the money to buy a copy libraries let's look after our libraries and this i was so pleased my book was stocked in a library and new zealand and somebody got in touch after getting it from their library on the south island of new zealand so um but it's available pretty much everywhere so and i've had some lovely feedback from the readers in canada already so and yeah it's a great story and it's a positive story it might be a lot of heartbreak in it but there's a lot of love there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of healing in it awesome thank you
0: Oh, that's so beautiful, Phil. Thank you. And I think I can expect kind of a little competition. So if any of our listeners find the Orphan Boys book in a library, I'd like you to take a picture of it and post it on social media.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And tag, and tag me tag in. Thank you. Tag me in. I'm on I'm on Twitter and I'm on. I'm on Twitter uh, at Phil Muse. I'm on Instagram at Phil Muse author, and I've got a Phil Muse author page on Facebook as well. But I, I, I haven't done TikTok yet. I'm not that not that advanced. <laughs>
0: That's okay. We'll have to, me, me too. I've got to build myself <laughs> to that point.
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> no, that's beautiful. Thank you so very much for taking the time out of oh, your night that's getting later and later for you. I, um,
1: yeah, I think we're on a, it may be midnight. Is it midnight? Oh, it's just gone midnight here, but that's fine. It's a, been a pleasure to talk to you and um, uh, sending so much love to you all in Canada.
0: Oh, thank you. And around the world.
1: Around um, yes,
0: we, <laughs> our, our majority of listeners are in the States. Our second is Canada, and our third is uh, Germany. And our fourth is Ireland.
1: Oh, well, love to everyone in the US, Canada, Ireland, and, of course, Germany, and everywhere else.
0: Yes, thank you. Thank you, Phil, for your beautiful <laughs> so- story beautiful story i'd love to find out what you're going to do next because i know you've got some other plans in the works i know you do
1: yeah i've got um so i'm doing it doing a few talks on um loss and bereavement um but i am also just starting to put the finishing touches to my first novel which uh, it may not be published for a year or two. We're just trying to organise that at the moment. Um, But that's called The Girl on the Red Carpet, and that'll be coming out um, possibly next year. We'll have to wait and see. But it's a great story, and it's set um, in the world of breakfast TV, something different.
0: Oh, wow, that sounds interesting.
1: Something completely different. There's a lot of comedy in it. Uh, some great characters, some larger-than-life characters. Uh, uh, but, no, I'm really excited about it, and um, and we'll see what other projects arise in the next uh, year or two.
0: That's exciting. Oh, thank you, Phil. Thank you. Thank you so very much for coming on our show today, Phil.
1: Oh, thank you, Tina. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Well, guys, I can't believe another exceptional story from a real story of a real person. Um, It's unbelievable. That's all I can say, you know, to listen at the courage and the bravery that you've had, Phil. That's, it's beautiful. Beautiful. So beautiful. So thank you, listeners for coming out today to listen to our story of an exceptional orphan boy story of life after Something's occurred in your life um, after a tragedy hits. We can use it in so many different aspects of our life. It doesn't have to be death. It could be a sickness um, or a family dispute as well. They all come in shapes and sizes. And I really appreciate each and every one of you for coming. And I have to thank our German friends as well. Danke fürs zu hören, meine deutsche Freunde, für diese Podcast heute. Um, thank you. I really appreciate each and every one of you. Please like, share, and subscribe to our channel. Um, lots of love, lots, um, and I always end with Carol Burnett. Do you remember who Carol Burnett is, Phil?
1: Yes, I do. (laughs) Uh
0: it's unfortunately our generation, isn't it? It So I always end with Carol Burnett because she always put a smile on my face every time I listen to her. So I'm so glad we had this time together just to have a laugh or sing a song. Seems we just get started and before you know it, comes a time we have to say so long. So long, my dear friends. So long, stay safe, be healthy. And till next week, lots of love to all of you. Thank you. Bye for now.
1: Bye.